Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hola, me llamo el chief. Okay, I think I've exhausted enough of my espanol. This is in the can. Part of the Barnburner Podcast Network brought to you by Blue Note Bourbon, a small batch bourbon distilled in Memphis by Memphians. Be noteworthy, Memphis. In case you haven't guessed, we're talking Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. And as Shark said, there's two kind of people in this world, those that have seen Roma and uncultured swine. So let's head to Mexico City, baby. A.K.A. Sam is my real name. And I'm here with Farmer Barn Thomas, who is the resident Adam Morrison stand. Thomas, how are you, man? Doing well, fellas. And I think it's only appropriate that I start out by saying that in second grade, I pissed my pants in a live-action Charlie Brown. I loved growing up and reenacting WWE wrestling. My name is Thomas Ritter, and I am an actor. <laughs> Is this, are we just gonna like start riffing and just do like I mean, we we don't even have to talk about Roma. We could just do like performance theater. But uh, so we also have Connor Dunning of ninety two nine on board for this particular episode. We're excited to have Connor on. He is the producer of the Eric Hasseltine show uh, and is doing big things in the city. Connor, thanks for joining, man. How are you? I'm doing really well, guys. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. Just finished up watching Roma again for the second time, and I gotta say it's probably even even better the second time so i'm really excited to talk about it um as a bio i don't know if i can follow thomas 
that was pretty legendary. So uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna let it. I'm just gonna let us go from here. No, I think that's that's good. A few people can follow Thomas and his urination problems. Uh, so if yeah. you haven't guessed, we are talking. Well, hey guys, I just wanted to do it because tonight's the SAG Afro Awards. Okay, come on. <laughs> <laughs> when are we gonna get Sandy Lyle a SAG? You know, like his performance in Crocodile Tears is incredible. <laughs> that is a great question. Uh, we are talking 2008's Roma, the Alfonso Cuarón uh, Netflix movie um, that is kind of one of the Oscar darlings. So I'll kick us off with a brief plot summary. In this semi-autobiographical family drama set in Mexico City during the tumultuous politics in the 1970s, we follow Cleo, a housekeeper for a middle-class family. We see lots of laundry being done. We see lots of dog poop being cleaned up or not so cleaned up and stepped in. Uh, we see cars driven extremely poorly. We lose faith in all male role models, but importantly, we get a good feel about how a maid can become an even bigger part of a family than even a patriarch. This is the Roma podcast. Guys, I'm going to come in hot. Is this the GOAT film of this Oscar season? Is this the best movie this year? Um, Probably. Maybe. Um, I've seen all of them except for one. I still haven't seen the favorite yet. But I have it on good authority that 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 one could be the the opposition to this movie. But after seeing it twice, and just based on the nominations that came out, considering that it was almost nominated in all the major categories, I think it's probably uh, the most likely to win Best Picture. Thomas, what say you? Yeah, man, I think you know my thoughts. I mean, I I loved it. For me, it was just emotionally it resonated so much. I'm a huge fan of Alfonso Cuarón's work. And, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be tough, tough to be for me. And, um, yeah, it's my favorite. So. So it's nominated for, you know, the, some of the, the few nominations and, and certainly on the power five, best picture, best director for Cuarón, best foreign language film. So we get that simultaneous nomination, which is interesting. In fact, it is, uh, it is kind of one of the first ones since Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 2000 to get those dual noms, nominations. Uh, Best Actress, um, the, uh, the actress that played Cleo, Yalitza Aparicio, was nominated, which I thought was pretty awesome for her to get that nod. And then Sporting Actress as well, um, the, the mother of the family, uh, Marina de Tavira. Um, sorry if I slaughter any of these names, but they're nominated as well. So that's exciting that we, we got those those two awesome performers in those categories. Uh, interesting background to this movie. So Quran, you know, in 2006, he had his drama, Children of Men, which is one of my favorite movies. And uh, he kind of came up with this idea of, of making this autobiographical film that's supposedly based on his childhood. So the dude grew up in Mexico City. And I guess he, he is really, if you look at this family in this movie, he would be one of those, one of those kids, like one of the, the kids growing up in the household. And he also had a really close relationship with his housekeeper uh, in that regard. And she was pretty much a part of the family. And I guess the absence of his own father uh, played a huge part in the writing of this movie. And apparently, according to Quran, 90% of the scenes represented in this film are taken out of his memory, which is pretty wild. Uh, it only cost 15 million to make, which is also really low by today's Hollywood standards. And he shot it in Mexico City. He shot it in black and white. I think to kind of elicit those those the old time feel of it, it does play take place in the seventies. He wrote and directed and shot it himself. He's a cinematographer because his longtime collaborator uh, Emmanuel, I don't can't pronounce his name, but 
um, he uh, he was apparently busy on another project, so he couldn't shoot it. Lubeski, yeah, Daniel yeah. Lubeski, Chivo Lubeski, who's like, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's the only cinematographer to win an Oscar three times in a row. Um, and it's for Gravity, Birdman, and I think it was The Revenant. Yeah, he shot um, The Revenant too. He also yeah, shot, uh, yeah. what was that, uh, that, that Christopher Nolan um, World War II movie. Uh, World War One movie that came out last year. Yeah, yeah he, he, I think he shot Dunkirk too, which was a. He's one of those cinematographers, and when you watch one of his movies, it, he really puts a stamp on it. Him and Roger Deakins, I think, are the two cinematographers that I could like readily identify by name and by style. So uh, he's just kind of an all star. But Coron said, "I don't give no fuck, man. I I can do this my damn self." He produced and right. co-edited the movie as well, so it's a very very personal project for Alfonso Coron. Now. What do y'all think about Alfonso Cuarón and like his sort of career leading up to Roma? And, and are, are you fans? Are you sort of, have you been distant from his work? Or what do you think so far uh, of his work? Um, I'm a big fan of him. Um, I think Children of Men is one of those movies that has just been just so underseen. It hasn't gotten the love that it really deserves. Uh, it's probably one of the best movies I've ever seen, at least in just the last scene I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but like the last scene, all the emotion he was able to to invoke and show without any dialogue whatsoever. And we see a lot of that in Roma, actually, really, really drew me to him. And then learning that he did Prisoner of Azkaban was was, was cool. Uh, but then Gravity was another one where he was just kind of like flexing on people like this whole movie, like the first five minutes of this movie, the way that me and my friends describe it is him just kind of flexing on us, just being like, I'm going to show you a puddle for five minutes. And you're gonna love it, and I, and I did, and I, and, and I, yeah, did I was in too. Just like, yeah. I was locked in. He like the way the, the way he's able to lock in an audience with just with just imagery, and he doesn't have to use all of these cheap things to try to tell you story or talk, kind of teach you about a character. Like he does it through visuals, and I think that that's kind of a lost art in cinema today, and definitely in Hollywood because it's all about big blockbuster movies and explosions and stuff like that. And I think the little things get missed a lot in this movie just hit the nail on the head for every single thing that a film lover will, de- will definitely mo- like want. Um, I know we'll probably get into the cinematography a little bit later, but it was unbelievable. It's some of the best cinematography I've seen probably since The Revenant and movies like that. Yeah. Yeah, no I would doubt. agree with that. I ahead, mean, completely, uh, you know, what Connor basically, to sum up what he just said um, and said very well, is think about the movies he just named off the Quran's done. I mean, the kind of gamut that he's run in terms of um, making just a really intense action thriller with his first movie of Children of Men. Well, let, um, well, let's get let's rattle off his IMDb right now. I mean, this guy, like, he's like this Steph Curry run that we're seeing to this point right now. I mean, he's like just banger after banger. He starts off with, I don't know if a movie of y'all seen, but E2 Mama Tom Beyond, his, his debut film. Well, not his debut film, but when he came in on the scene uh, in 2001, next he does, he gets part of the Harry Potter saga with those Prisoner of Azkaban, as Connor mentioned, which is personally my favorite of all the Harry Potter movies because it actually has like a, a real tone and feel to it, no doubt because of his direction. Children of Men, two years later, then he takes like seven years off and comes back with Gravity, which shook the movie going culture because it was something like none of us had seen before. You know, the movie takes place in, entirely in space uh, with pretty much two characters uh, and was, it was riveting to, to anyone who saw it in IMAX, especially. 
then five years later does Roma. So he's, he's, he's barely putting movies out there. He's certainly not cranking them out. Like we see some of these Marvel movies uh, and like Connor mentioned, man, he, he really is like a master of showing the mundane and allowing you to get drawn into a world and a story. Uh, there's no green screen here. You know, there's no, there's no explosions. There's no witty Marvel lines. It's all just people living their lives. But the fact that you can care about what they're doing, having, I mean, I, I don't know about y'all, but I have little to nothing in common with the characters in this movie personally, but I gave a shit, which is great storytelling, great direction, great writing. Um, but Thomas, yeah, you were continuing. You were, giving me the, you were giving me your take on Quran. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think with what you just said, naming off his IMDb, I mean, think about, you know, the different range of movies that he's done. And as you put it very well, how long he's taken, you know, he's very selective about the projects that he chooses to really put his heart and soul into, but to talk about, you know, doing a foreign film, doing a children's movie and Harry Potter, although, as you said, chief, it's, I would consider the darkest of any of the Harry Potter movies. And I really loved it too. And then you know, children of men and gravity, which is damn near a silent film. Um, and now this, I mean, it's just, the guy, there's really, it seems like there's nothing he can't do, um, which, you know, leaves me wanting more. Um, but for me, with Roma, real quick, it's like the more and more I feel as if you learn about the backstory of this movie, and we've touched on that from, you know, him drawing personal inspiration, him saying that 10 years ago he wasn't emotionally ready to make this movie, but even down to you know, it costing only $15 million to make, it featuring just exquisite cinematography and shots. And then, you know, um, Cleo, we, we haven't mentioned, she's not an actress. She's not trained. She showed up to um, a casting call because she just finished schooling to become a teacher and got this part and, you know, crushes it. So it's like, I know that, when you're talking about the Academy, maybe you shouldn't take the backstory and the makings and the ingredients into um, the movie or of a best picture into account. But I just, I, I can't for this one, you know, because there's so many just unbelievable and fantastical elements to it that make me love it so much. I feel like right, all yeah. good movies, like ones that kind of go down the history have that bizarre combination of, talent uh, and, and some weird amount of luck like you know the godfather recently uh, there's been a couple podcasts on it and like they didn't want to cast al pacino as, as michael corleone who's too short so you know that but the director coppola fought for you know pacino's casting and and uh, fought for other authentic italian americans to be cast and um so you know because of this weird sort of like amount of luck it ends up becoming you know, one of the, the classics of, of American cinema. So I feel like this one sort of captures all of those weird, fantastical, mythical elements. Like I, I was reading the IMDb trivia and I was just like, honestly, I, nothing on here would surprise me. They could be like, the cast literally did magic and summoned like a demon to shoot the third day. Like, and I'd be like, oh, cool. Yeah, Quran, great director. Like, I, you know, like I, nothing would surprise me based on just kind of the mythology around this movie. Uh, Connor, you would say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, just to add off of what y'all said, not only was it luck involved, but it was also risk. I mean, just the fact that he wanted to make the movie in black and white, which I think is brilliant because um, 
black and white, if you really think about it, that, it, that kind of invokes the feeling of memories and, and that kind of throws you back in that time period, like you were saying, like without having the like the movie in black and white, I think that our eye would have been pulled away too much. We wouldn't have really been able to appreciate the cinematography because what it did is it eliminated colors like red, green, and yellow, which really pop and pull pull your eye to the screen. So it allowed you for those like big tracking shots. Like one of my personal favorites is, is the one in the backyard where it shows you all the different homes. But if it was in, if it was in true color, like we, our eyes would have gotten pulled everywhere. We would have missed some stuff. But I think the black and white fully allows you to focus on what he wants you to. He shows you every, every single thing he shows you is for a reason. And the timing is for a reason. I think that that was just absolutely beautiful and masterful. And I think also making it in Spanish, or I, I think it was also like some Aztec in there or something like that. It was like a mix of two different languages sometimes, uh, which I think, was, I think is very interesting. Like asking an audience for a pretty long movie to be reading it the entire time is a risk. And the fact that people are doing it and appreciating it and want to give it best picture is a lot. That is all credit to Alfonso. I mean, it's just his brilliance taking the risk and having a little bit of luck and taking the risk on these actors that don't have any experience, taking the risk of just showing up and telling the actors what they were doing that day. Like they had no idea what was going to happen when they showed up to a scene. He was just like, Hey, here it is improv it. Let's see what it is. And I think that that's why it feels so real because all of the reactions were actually real and they were doing it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the release of this movie too. And, so released on Netflix, Netflix is the, the producer of this movie. As, as we've seen them start to produce more and more content, uh, and it was released in limited theaters across the United States, of course. Uh, two of us here in Memphis, one of us in Nashville. Thomas, was there a Nashville release of Roma? Yeah, there was. I actually, uh, believe it or not, um, for all the movie purists out there are going to be horrified by this, I watched it on a flight overseas um, on my iPad. Oh, didn't catch in theaters. Um, but you know, <laughs> like you said, as, as much disgust is invoked by that. Um, <laughs> it still came off so beautiful. I mean, as Connor said, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, Leonard Maltin right now just like vomited. If he's listening to this, like he just threw up in his mouth <laughs> and pro probably is going to turn this off and, you know, we might never see him again. As, as much as I would have wanted to see in theaters. Um, I, I gotta say, I mean, I don't, I loved it so much and, and the way in which he shot it and the scenes themselves where at any moment, I feel like this is that special of a movie where you can pause it and you're just like, my God, this shot is exquisite. Um, even when you're, you know, 30,000 feet above uh, earth watching it on an iPad. Yep, yep, no doubt. I, I I had a kind of a watch party at my place, and we did a, the Netflix screening because at that point uh, there was going to be no Memphis showing, and at some point it was announced later. Indie Memphis shouts to Indie Memphis for getting together. I think it's playing this week. I think Tuesday night uh, at the Paradise. January twenty ninth. Yeah, um, and that there's two showings, and it's, is it a studio or a Paradiso? I think it's at Paradiso, but I'm not positive on that. They sent just Malco has a bunch of social media. It'll be on the Malco pages on any social media you go to. Yeah, check that out. I would recommend if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out and on a big screen. I mean, it's certainly a movie worth seeing in the widescreen format in a theater like that with a group of people kind of sharing the experience. But we did try to create that in my apartment. I had like four or five people over that are also um, kind of movie buffs, and we sat down and popped some popcorn and. We put our phones down on, you know, on the table and 
Because it's one of those things that, like, when you're watching at home, I know that I'm succumbed to this a lot, man. Like, you, you could just start pinging around on your phone a little bit and just answering a text here and there and, you know, checking Twitter real quick and not get sucked in like you do in a movie b- a theater because you are cognizant of not bothering other people uh, in the movie theater. So I, I, I was trying to avoid that. But, Connor, how did you see it first? I saw it um, by myself like just on, on a night, but one of my, like my number one film guy, uh, just texted me. He's like, Hey, I'm watching Roma. And I was like, okay, I'm going to jump on too. So we kind of live watched it together and just texted back and forth. And are we getting into spoilers here? Like where are the, what are the rules for spoilers? Are we warning yeah, the them? Are, are we gonna... No fucking rules, man. Spo- I mean, th- this is in the can. This is part Spo- of the Barnburner podcast network. We, we don't care. Okay, cool. So spoiler alert. Basically, every time some batshit crazy stuff happened, we would just freak out. And, like, we would pause the movie, talk about it for about five minutes, and then hit back to watch the movie. But um, I'm definitely checking it out. I'll be at the screening on um, uh, the 29th. Because I do want to see it in theaters. I think it is a movie with the cinematography, just the color, just the way he just filmed everything needs to be seen on a big screen. So I'm definitely going to be checking it out for my third time in theaters. You know what I want I want to mention something real quick too about that is um I actually saw an article I think it was yesterday saying that like a movie chain like AMC um is actually not going to be showing it um and the article kind of remained ambiguous in terms of it made it seem as if that was by choice um which I took as more of like a middle finger to Netflix and this idea of of streaming content like this that you know is the cream of the crop the bell of the ball for award season um but i i just was so pissed about that you know it's like really you're gonna (laughs) try to throw your weight around and and a movie chain like amc is gonna try to prevent people from seeing a movie like this out of you know um some antagonistic behavior of we have a problem with what streaming's doing to movie theaters. What are y'all y'all's thoughts on that? Yeah, man, AMC, get the fuck out of here, man. Yeah, (laughs) that's, that's ridiculous. And honestly, ask anyone, I I have friends in in film school and I've asked them as someone that's about to get into the industry as either a writer or director, just somewhere in the industry, like, do you care about Netflix? What do you think about it? And they will always say, and I would, I would venture to guess most, writer directors would feel this way too that more content uh and more opportunities for content is good like think about all the scripts that are unmade that just sit on that blacklist every year and now with netflix producing them they're out there you know like directors that otherwise might have not seen the light of day are getting shots and i think that's really good like that's objectively good the more content that's put out there the more diamonds in the rough we might find as as consumers and i'm i'm all for it i don't i don't have this sort of like I was sort of annoyed that Memphis didn't get a release initially, but that, I think that's more beef with the local movie theaters here than it would be with Netflix. Um, but, you know, I, I'm fine with it. I really don't don't have some sort of, like, dedication to to the, the classic movie theater experience, although I do love going to the movies. So long story short, everyone boycott AMC theaters. But, yeah. Yeah. I, I, here's the thing. I, you know, I, like... Is that where is like so we have Malco here? Is AMC like the? I'm trying to think about what is that like Knoxville, Nashville, the predominant conglomerate over there? Yeah, there? yeah, okay. it's the big one up there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing: they're probably gonna you know go bankrupt because of this podcast. So, uh, would also like to say <laughs> R.I.P. AMC Theaters. 
um, <laughs> forgotten. You should have honored. Uh, you should have honored Netflix and their ability to produce things. So, I actually think the three of us should meet up at an AMC theater somewhere between Nashville and Memphis, and uh, we'll screen Roma for anyone that's interested, including homeless folk on uh, my iPad in the hallway of an AMC theater. <laughs> yeah, as long as I can wear that, like, as long as I can wear that outfit that that dude wears when the forest is on fire, he's dressed as like some kind of weird, crazy demon thing. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> he like walks up yeah, and takes there, the hat there's off. A, there was a small part of me that was like, is he going to get caught on fire wearing all of that, like around all this fire? I thought that maybe it was going to like freak out the kids or something, but that, see, just shit like that in the movie though, it would just happen. Yeah. Like it, there was a lot of like big set pieces in the movie that you were just like, oh my God. And there was so much emotion and stuff happening in it. It was like every 30 minutes, it was like, he just showed you something that was kind of jarring. And I think that that was a, like, I think Thomas was talking about the emotion that he felt watching. And I think a lot of it was because he would kind of like lull you to sleep, which is kind of the family stuff. And then boom, he'd hit you with like a ninja dick out of nowhere that you were not prepared for. Uh, yeah. And, uh, who, far be it for me to say I would ever be prepared for the ninja dick. I mean, that's not something you can really <laughs> ever like, no matter how much training you've had, uh, no matter how many dicks you've seen uh, in cinema, uh, you were in the locker room. There's just no way, you know, this isn't just the why sort of locker room situation. This was, uh, this was something else, but I agree. You know, he adds a couple of drawing scenes. One thing Koran really does that I love, did in Children of Men a lot. Um, he, he really he shoots big set pieces like that from the perspective of the main characters uh, in a way that right. is that makes you feel like you're experiencing it with the characters you've been through the movie with. So, um, you know, like, for instance, the, the Corpus Christi Massacre, which is, the backdrop to one of the, the film's most climatic scenes in Roma. We have our main character, Cleo, you know, like doing some harmless, like baby, uh, baby shopping for like a, uh, a crib. And all of a sudden, like, you know, we got these protesting students, uh, have like essentially a huge coup outside. And we see all these people out the window of the department store where Cleo's looking too, you know, like literally armed with knives and bamboo sticks and guns have like a, a riot in the streets. Uh, and then, you know, of course it makes its way up to our, to our characters, but, he does a really good job of capturing that. Any other lesser filmmaker would have had like a handheld camera down there in the street and tried to capture violence and made it about sort of the, hey, we hired all these actors. We're going to at least get some footage down here. But he doesn't care about that. You know, he cares about the experience you're going through with the main characters. So that's just, I mean, he's just a master. And he's like, there's certain directors you sort of have like, hey, if this guy releases a movie, I'm going to go see it no matter what what it's about. He's definitely... Uh, he's definitely one of those guys. I think the ringer calls it season tickets and I got season tickets to Corona. Yeah. And there's something Absolutely. to be said about what you just touched on chief about, you know, he stays in the moment and he allows you as an audience member to stay in the moment of seeing things, feeling things from the perspective of the character. I mean, that scene is really gripping because you know, they're watching this carnage unfold and then the scene play out to where shit's just getting quickly so out of control and the police can't handle, um, you know, the the guys that are just raising hell. And when it breaks into the building that Cleo and um, I think it's the, the mother of Sophia, um, you know, where they're shopping for the crib and, and you see that, you know, spoiler alert, one of the guys that has made their way to the second floor where they are unconveniently, inconveniently located is Furman. It's gripping, you know, and you don't know. It's like 
you, you feel her, you get to experience and kind of, I don't know, man, just feel her anxiety, her fear, um, because it's as if you're there in that scene, in that moment. It's really, it's special filmmaking. Right. Well, especially because that scene came right after where he just threatened her. So when he's holding a gun at her, he already doesn't, has made it known that he doesn't want that child and that he will hurt both of them. There is a split second where you're like, oh, is he like, he's about to kill her. Like there was a, for about five seconds, I thought that she was dead. And, and yes, that anxiety was amazing. It was incredible. It made the scene 10 times better. Yeah. He lets, he lets the camera linger for the exact amount of time. And, and, you know, the way he reveals that it's Furman by panning from the gun up to him. And then you as the audience realize it. And then he pans back straight over to Cleo. You get her reaction. She's gripping her stomach. And like you said, the setup of the earlier scene where she confronts him and, and he, he says, Hey, I'm a violent guy and I'm a psycho. And honestly, like I'm pretty unpredictable and could do anything. Uh, like you said, it's a great payoff there. Like, what's he going to do? Is he going to do something about it? And, uh, it, it was intense and the, the little moments of intensity uh, broken up by all the, the small little family moments of, of them kind of living their lives really kept the pacing good. You know, it could have been a movie that we've used the term lulls you, you know, and, and because it is a slow moving film and certainly not one for the, the ADD crowd. Like you won't find Robert Downey Jr., you know, quipping to Chris Hemsworth in here. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 one that that deserves your full attention and deserves you to really watch it and, and of course, read the subtitles and kind of live in the world with the characters for, for a couple of hours. Um, so you guys want to move into some categories or you guys got some other thoughts on the, the, the film just generally? I, I got no, a real let's, quick, let's I got oh, a real quick, quick thought, um, just real quick. And that's, um, and, and this is speaking more to the larger perspective of the film, but I feel like I haven't seen as many people talk about this, um, you know, in our society today where women are really making their voice heard, it's powerful to me that he made a film that basically exhibits the very meaning of of what it means to exemplify a strong, independent woman. And then you see that in both Cleo and you see it in Sophia, but the beauty in it is it comes from two completely different perspectives, both socioeconomically, um, I mean, even in their upbringing and their background, you can tell that Sophia's probably middle to upper class, um, whereas, you know, they touch on Cleo coming from the outskirts, and as you mentioned, Connor, speaking more of like a a native language that even at one point, like one of the children at the beginning of the movie is like, I don't understand you. Like, it's hard for me to understand you when you speak. Right. Um, all that to say, like, as someone that, was largely raised by a single mother. The movie really affected me because it was such a beautiful but subtle way for him to really show people like women, man, they can be really, really strong. They can overcome odds. Um, and, you know, and our society, as I said, where I think oftentimes women are marginalized and they're put into neat and confined categories it was really cool that he made this movie in a way that it naturally just exploded on its own to where you see it play out much less, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, where these women just drag, 
um, these children along, you know, and are, are refusing to, um, have them feel abandoned or left behind. So before we even got into the categories, I kind of wanted to mention that because I feel like it's one of the more powerful movies I've seen in the last few years. When you're thinking about like, you know, really touching on a topic or perspective, um, you know, and just a similar way is like a movie like Spotlight touched on Catholic Church and abuse. And mm-hmm. for me, this movie, yeah, it's his love letter to Mexico, but I saw it really as it's a it's his ode and like really just um, homage to strong single parent women, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and timely, the, considering the climate that we're in, and also, uh, you know, it, it does take place in the 70s and, and in an area of the world where um, perhaps there were less rights even and kind of less respect. So, you know, it, it is it is kind of cool to see the story of these women and that have other duties, you know, literally to raise their own children and to care for their own children, just abandoned by their the men in their lives. Uh, but but they don't, you know, they don't succumb to all the external things and, and, and battle through it. So, no, I agree. It's it's a good point and no doubt why it has resonated as much with a lot of the movie going public. All right, well, let's move into categories. Let's start with uh, Indican's best scene. Now, I kind of developed like five of them right here. And, of course, y'all can write one in, too. I'm not a dictator and I'm happy to accept Right. And so first I've got Cleo confronts Furman, uh, his military training place. Uh, I don't really know what what the hell's going on there. They're just like training with wooden sticks. And I don't know if they're like some sort of radicalized military operation or if it's like the actual Mexican military. Um, I don't understand necessarily the socio-political things going on. But Cleo is pregnant. She goes to confront Furman, the father, and uh, and tell him that she's pregnant and that just kind of, you know, let him know you know, essentially wanting to reconnect, even though he abandoned her initially and, and uh, wants to maybe have him play some sort of part, either presence-wise or financially for her eventual child. Uh, the second one is uh, Cleo tells Sophia, her boss, that she's pregnant um, and seen in the house when Cleo's worried she's going to get fired. You know, this is a situation where this is her livelihood and she won't be able to perform her job as adequately uh, when she's pregnant as she would, you know, obviously not pregnant. So she's worried she's going to get fired. She has this sort of breakdown to her boss. Uh, The third scene, hospital delivery, um, the lengthy delivery scene in the hospital was apparently only shot once. Uh, The doctors and nurses were real, not actors. So, of course, Koran, we've seen this time and time again. He goes for authenticity uh, where we see Cleo's baby being born finally juxtaposed right up against that, you know, that shot of violence uh, that we just talked about earlier. Uh, with the, the riot and the, the gunshot or the gun holding on Cleo. And, uh, and then we, of course, spoiler to see her baby born, stillborn. Uh, the baby is born dead. And so we see the baby. She holds the baby for a little bit in her arms and then has to, to let it go. And then another, the last one that I thought was, of course, the final scene, likely the one that you've seen screenshotted of uh, the families on the beach, Cleo and all the kids and her, uh, her, uh, her boss, the mother, Sophia. And uh, she saves the kids essentially from drowning uh, and she herself cannot swim. And there's kind of this like cathartic moment on the beach where they all hold each other as one family. And, and it's sort of a moment of um, solidarity. You know, they, all these people have been through a lot and that this is the one microcosm of, of the whole movie's worth of struggles. 
uh, I, I think that he did a great thing in that final beach scene and, and certainly something that they did. And Butch Cassidy, you know, one of my favorite movies and one of the, the screenwriters of Butch Cassidy, uh, the William Goldman and Robert Town, uh, some of the best screenwriters of all time, always say, know something about your characters that the audience does not until you absolutely have to reveal it. I think Cleo's is just she can't swim. And so, you know, that comes up right before she is you know, forced to jump into the water. And then we as the audience kind of have to deal with it and wonder what's going to happen. So I thought right. some, some good writing there, some good setups and payoffs and just uh, another example of Quran uh, doing his thing. Do you guys have any other scenes you want to write in? And then let's talk uh, which ones y'all like the most. Um, the only other scene, I guess, would be probably like the open just introduction to the family. And then when the father comes home, I think that uh, just the stuff that he does in the car with the dad, just showing you everything, like for oh, some reason, yeah. it, just, it automatically made him a menacing character. And I don't know why, really, uh, because nothing was said. He didn't really do anything except smoke a cigarette. He's ashing but a cigarette the, and then he's like backing up and right. going forward. And like he's meticulous with the way he puts that big ass car in that narrow ass corridor. Right, right. It just, it, there was something like, I don't, there was just something about him where I was like, okay, this is just not a good guy. Like right off the bat, you got that vibe from him and just kind of how the family interacted with him and how the maids did and Cleo. And so uh, that was just the only other scene that I would have wanted to add. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say too, like that scene, it's, you can really feel the tension, you know, from, yeah, him putting a cigarette out to him trying to park the car to him stepping in the dog shit and being really pissed that it wasn't cleaned up. Um, and even telling his wife, you know, like, what do we have maids for? This place is a wreck. You, you just, you very quickly can tell that all is not right. Um, you know, you think maybe at first he could be more of an on edge type person or that his, he's bringing his work home with them. But, um, you know, quickly come to find out it's that their marriage is disintegrating um, so yeah, I think that's, I'm with Connor. That's an important scene to bring up. Um, and then I would even say kind of to continue on from that, the scene where, you know, it's portrayed as if he's leaving on a business trip, but just the way Sophia hugs him from behind as he's getting ready to get in his car and come to find out later, you know, it's, it's him leaving. He's, he's, he's kind of saying, see you later. Um, and that's, that's the end of, of their marriage, if you will. So that one's a really important one to me as well, just in how it takes place. Um, you know, it ends with Sophia snapping at Cleo, coincidentally enough, over the dog shit again. Um, and basically right. saying, hey, he's leaving because you weren't doing his job, um, which you know, she knows isn't the case and isn't true. We know that's not the case, nor is it true. But nonetheless, it's a very important scene to the overall context and kind of plot evolution of the movie no doubt connor what's your what's your uh in the can best scene I, I guess in the can best scene um i think it would have to be i i guess the ending scene uh because it's, that's kind of like he kind of puts a bow on everything that he did all the character development that he did the little the little hint that, oh, she can't swim, like, right before she goes out there, the fact that it's her saving children after she had just lost her child. Um, it's probably a memory that actually happened. Like you said, it's 90% that actually happened. So putting having it just all the emotion behind it, and they've already killed a child before. You don't know if they're going to kill another. This just There's a lot of questions behind it and a lot of emotion in the scene. Plus the cinematography 
with the planes and the family and, and like hugging next to the sun and just the water and the way that how you really feel the power of the water. I think all of it was, was probably why it topped it for me. It was a perfect, perfect, almost ending to the movie for me. Thomas, what do you got? Um, real quick to follow up on Connor's choice, which is by far a worthy one. Um, it was funny. I was watching a Hollywood reporter when they kind of do a round table around the award season time. And, uh, you know, it, was, it involves Alfonso and Bradley Cooper and Spike Lee and so on and so forth. And it was funny because at one point Spike Lee turns to Alfonso and he goes, Hey man, how'd you shoot that last scene? And he's like taken back by it. He's like, what do you mean? He's like the beach scene. How did you do that? And it's, it's unbelievable. You need to look it up. Cause he's like, um, you can tell he's really humbled by hearing someone like Spike Lee be utterly amazed over like, how did you do that? You know? And, um, he gets into real quick about how they like built a pier so that they could shoot basically that tracking scene of her going into the water. And, um, but that like they ran into difficulties because the tropical storm the night before they were supposed to shoot it, like fucked up a lot of the pier. Um, so they shot it once. And one take, which is just ridiculous. Uh, it, it made me go back and rewatch it again after I, I saw that clip because I was like, is that even possible? I mean, really? One take? Um, so there's that. I mean, I think Connor's dead on. That's an incredible scene. For me, I would do the hospital delivery just because I think that, that scene made me the most emotional. And there's a lot of scenes in the movie that, you know, are worthy of, of bringing real emotion out of you. But the hospital scene, man, of just the the frenetic pace of them, you know, showing up after experiencing the traumatic, like, chaos of, of the outbreak and the uprising. And then, you know, things starting to go wrong and the baby's heart rate dropping and then she gets ushered in that room. And, um, and man, like, talking about children of men again, what what is up with his, you know, ability to film birth scenes <laughs> where it looks like you're in the freaking delivery room. Yeah. Was right. that like, is he using real like newborn babies? Yeah. And by newborn babies, I'm well, talking about like mere minutes old because it sure as hell looks like it. He's, the doctors and the nurses are, are real. Um, he, he deliberately didn't hire actors in that scene because he wanted you to feel like it was a real one. And that one was also, if I'm not mistaken, filmed in one take. I think that was also filmed in one take. And I think that the, that she, that Chloe, she got her nomination probably from that scene. Like just the, the emotion she was able to show in it was unbelievable. So I think that's a great I mean, choice. Yeah. When the, when the baby is being taken from her, you know, after they've declared it dead, it's mm-hmm. just, golly, the power of that, of just, you know, trying to, and, and you can't really, um, you know, thankfully it forces us, you to look at it. But it, it forces you to look at it. it. It forces, it puts, here we are, three, you know, young guys talking about a scene where a woman has to go through something as heartbreaking and painful as, as giving birth to a stillborn child, you know? Right. And, and that, to me, is like, for, for someone to be able to, you know, exhibit that kind of scene and pull emotion out of, of three dudes, that's, that's special. Yeah, he really lingers too on the. I mean, he, he seems to know. There's just a lot of like incredible, like sort of happy accidents here. I feel like. I mean, first of all, he 
Quran, sometimes guys uh, or, or women or anybody, people are put on this earth to do something. And like when they find it and start doing it, it's like really satisfying. And it's clear this dude was supposed to make movies. I mean, the, Definitely. The, the fact that he's so talented with capturing images and, and getting across emotions by pure imagery, in addition to being a solid writer and, and storyteller, uh, is, I mean, second to none. And so I'm really glad, first of all, that someone put a camera in his hands at some point. Uh, and then the fact that he hires this, you know, this actress to play Cleo, uh, Yulitsa Aparicio, and she never acted before and is able to pull this role off is, is absolutely insane. I mean, what, what other like sports analogies are there? You show up on like did the first, the first game you play is like game seven of the world series. And Jeremy Lynn. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, no, because Matt says she's gonna suck eventually. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to give, give her the lane curse. Uh, I don't know. Who's? I can't think of like a one-hit wonder in sports. I guess. Yeah, I mean, like just to show up on in the first game and just have an. I mean, there's the, there's not there's not gonna be one. There's no way. Like this, literally, this. Not for a fucking Oscar. Your first performance ever. That's. I mean, that's why. Yeah, just killing it. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I think there are a lot of things about this movie that sort of just come together and, and, and make it what it is. I, I really like, too, we talked about the husband, uh, Fernando Gradiga uh, as Antonio, Sophia's absent husband. Uh, he, he was really good, too. One thing I liked is that, that the, uh, the family that they worked for, um, you know, they had their moments, I guess, where they were assholes, but they were aggregately pretty good to their, to their health, you know? Like, they were nice people. Even the husband who had... Uh, who was the villain, I, I guess, um, unofficially of the movie, uh, was, you know, like, he was he was nice at certain points. Like, he encounters Cleo in the hospital and, you know, like, kind of uh, consoles her on the elevator uh, in a little bit, you know, before she goes into the delivery room. So, you know, he's not, he did not do the right things in the movie, but there were points where, you know, he wasn't just some sort of, like, mustache twirling, let me put this dynamite on the railroad trap type villain, you know? Like, he had some some moments of, of uh, reconciliation, I guess. Uh, but one, one. I mean, uh, I guess all uh, great choices. I mean, there's just a million little awesome moments in this movie. Uh, I liked. I think my favorite scene is the when Cleo tells Sophia she's pregnant, and because it kind of like puts a bow in a bunch of different plot elements at that point. Like it's also Sophia lying to the kids the first time about where their dad is, uh, and it starts out with her telling them to you know write some letters to their dad that he's doing some extra time for research in Quebec. And he won't be back. And uh, Cleo just dutifully sits off to the side while you know she talks to the children, and and you could tell like the emotions sort of welling up in Cleo. And finally, Cleo gets a chance to tell Sophia, and you're wondering as an audience, like, is Sophia going to freak the fuck out and fire her right there? Or is she going to what's going to happen? And then not only does she not fire her, but she consoles her and takes her to the uh, to the OBGYN and um, sort of kind of acts as a surrogate uh, sister or mother to to Cleo. Uh, and so that was kind of a heartwarming mo- moment in a movie that otherwise, like, is is uh, you know full of a lot of really sad and depressing moments. So I, I mean, I thought Cleo's performance in that particular moment was really good. The way she explains what happened and how you know she sort of doesn't like. I think you know, Berman was her first um, sexual experience, so and, and it doesn't even know how, how to articulate like how, how long she hasn't had her period in, and just uh, Sophia's reaction is great. And I thought Pitch Perfect between two of the the best, uh, the best performers in the movie. So love that scene and loved it the second time too. Yeah, yeah he did. Real about the, 
forgot about Henry Rowan Gardner. I think that's probably the most apt sports analogy. You know, breaks oh, his arm yeah. and the club to the division title. So oh, I'm here for that. I'm here for that. That's good. Uh, hey, real cool. quick, I want to go back to the scene where you're talking about Antonio seeing Chloe in the hospital. I took that scene a completely different way than I think you did. Really? Um, I took it as him just completely trying to save face and him actually does. And he just doesn't actually care about her at all. Because do you remember when they get off the elevator and he says, I have to leave you now. They won't let me go in with you. And then she's like, no, 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 you can come in with me. Like you can come. And he's like, Oh, well, actually, I have this appointment. Like, I think he was just kind of bullshitting. I think he was just trying to save face. Like, yeah. that's what I took from it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think he's, he's still a kind of a rat. I think he's, you know, not a good dude at his heart. Uh, but so I think he couldn't handle being there because he knew that there was a possibility that, you know, the other, mm-hmm. other parts of his family would show up in that delivery room. So he wasn't. You know, he was he was right. okay to like console her a little bit when you know when no one else was around, but he didn't want to run the risk of seeing his family uh, in the delivery room. But you know, exactly. I, I guess yeah. there were there were some moments there where where uh, he showed that he wasn't just a completely harmless you know bastard. But uh, but yeah, no, that's interesting, and, and certainly there's a lot of parts of this movie I think that are open to different interpretations. So that's uh, that's cool that you 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 saw that element of it. Uh, let's move on to who gets the most buckets, which is our MVP of the movie, our best acted category. Uh, Thomas, who you got for MVP, most buckets? Ooh, man. Um, I'm tempted to go Professor Zovek because he pulled the car. Pulled <laughs> it. Um, that's like that's like picking um, like Bogut as the best player on those Warriors teams. <laughs> which, hey, I mean, I'm, I'm here for that. If you wanted to make a bold pick, this is what we do on it. can challenge the process. I kind of did a double take because he looked like Eddie Nahara um, when he played for the Nuggets. But, uh, no. Um, That's a deep cut go Nuggets fan right there. Big Nuggets guy, in case anyone didn't know. Um, I'm going to go Cleo, man. I just think that, you know, when you're talking about best acted, and, and we've talked about the sad nauseum, we, I don't need to beat a dead horse, but just the, the beauty in which she plays this character uh, – and then knowing that she has no acting experience, um, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it truly is what I think is one of the great, when you're talking about it in the larger context of, you know, her being up for an Oscar, one of the greatest Oscar stories of all time. And, and I'll, I'm going to be rooting for her just because I think she crushed this scene, um, the scene, this movie, she crushed her scenes and, uh, and she's just unbelievable. I mean, she really makes you feel as if, um, you're kind of walking alongside her on this journey of, of being, you know, a lowly housekeeper, but that kind of finds her role and her prominence in this family. And then also her unexpected pregnancy. And, and just, as you mentioned, Sam, I mean, this is someone that, you know, she, she's not nearly as educated as you expect on, on, in terms of, you know, what comes along with pregnancies and, um, you know, <laughs> how that kind of happens in general. Um, so just going along her alongside her with her and her journey, it's, it's a pretty neat thing. So I'd probably choose her. Yep. Connor, who you got? Yeah, it's Chloe. And I, I can't add any more. It's, it's definitely her. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue anyone else. She controls the movie. She's the reason it works with her character. If it didn't work, the entire movie would collapse and, um, you have you have to totally buy into a character, which 
very few of us have anything in common, you know, other than just being a human. Uh, but and she does it. She pulls it off with the plum and, and one of the best performances of the year. Would be shocked if she won the Oscar. But uh, but if the Academy really wanted to make some sort of statement like, hey, we're not full of shit, then maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe you make a play like this. Uh, so Justice I for Cleo. Justice for Cleo. Valentine, Justice for Cleo. Uh, you heard it here first. And, and, you know, that might very well be something I tweet shortly after the recording of this podcast. So moving to six man of the movie, the, the character actor who makes the most of limited screen time and is able to capture our hearts while they're on screen the limited amount of time they are. Connor, passing the ball to you. Who's your sixth man in the movie? I, I think it's got to be Thomas's idea. It's got to be Professor Zovac. I mean, he's throwing a thousand miles an hour in like the yeah. five minutes he's in the movie. Just yeah. unbelievable. And I'm not going to lie. I think we all did it. We stood up and tried to do the pose as soon as that part of the movie happened. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. And I, 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 yeah, I, like I was definitely over here trying to do it. But like it, um, like I, it, there's, it's hard to add to him or it's hard to like put into words what his character actually was. There's no way to really describe it. You're like, I have no idea who this guy is. Why is he wearing that? Why is he teaching all of these? Why is he teaching martial arts? Like, where are we? What's going on? There's just so many questions. It's just, it's unbelievable. Like, just Professor Zovac, 10 out of 10, six man of the year. So I, I got to give a little backstory. Let me just, you know, let me just ISO in the paint right now on uh, Professor Zovac, who we see on the TV at some point earlier in the, the, the movie. Did y'all notice that? I, I didn't notice that until the second time around. No, like, I missed it. I must have missed it. Yeah, dude, he's truck. pulling the car, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's him. Uh, he's like a television personality, kind of, like a kind oh, of a, a small time celebrity, I guess, in, in Mexico City. But, is portrayed by a guy named Latin Lover, uh, which, first of all, shouts to that name. Uh, who, he's a wrestler. His real name is Victor Manuel Resendez Ruiz. Uh, he's a Lucador professional wrestler, wrestler and actor. He, he has been in the WWF, uh, but mostly has worked in the Mexican AAA promotion, which I guess is their wrestling league. Uh, so he, he is, uh, he's been wrestling for a long time, finally got his big break here, and made the most of it, man. I think that it's a bold pick, but I like it. Uh, Tom, it's interested to see what, what you think. I would go with, I'm going to cheat here a little bit, but I'm going to go with the children in aggregate. Um, you know, these little boys, and I think it's only one girl, but man, they crush it. And just, you really believe their emotion. That scene is so heartbreaking where um, I think it's the oldest son is outside his mom's bedroom, listening to her basically shout at her husband or ex-husband and really is coming to the realization that his parents have broken up right and like he's he's not coming home and then she comes out and sees him there and slaps him across the face and he immediately just evolves into a puddle of tears i'll go with the children because man they they make you believe that and and it plays into what we had mentioned earlier with Baron's decision to you know, not inform the actors and actresses what's going to go on until the day they show up on set, you know? Um, but they make you believe as if these children are really going through something as terrible as, as seeing their parents split up. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the, everyone kind of brings their A game and makes it work. It's, it is one where it's like a Jenga game, like one little block that doesn't quite work can really make this feel soap opera-ish. Uh, and not like a, a good family drama. So, agree, good pick. Um, 
Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Berman. I mean, I, he might be on the screen too much to not to, to not be a six man, but at the same time, he's really not in the movie a lot. I, what do you think? Ten minutes maybe on screen. He's he's very limited amount of screen time, and he kind of acts as yeah. this sort of imposing presence. Uh, is Cleo's lover, of course, the, the the father of her child, and abandons her literally the second that he hears that she's pregnant. Like says he's going to go get a fucking like ice cream uh, and go pee and just like gets the hell out of Dodge, which, um, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but the second he said he was going to, he had to go to the bathroom. I was like, Oh, see you later, Furman. Yeah. I knew, I knew he was peacing out. Just I did. The, yeah. I knew he was gone. Right. But I think that was purposeful. Like, I think he wanted you to know, like, it, you know, yeah. I feel like he does a good job at, you know, when he wants you to know something, he lets the audience sort of deduce it. Uh, but you know, he's a intimidating presence on screen when he threatens her. It's, it's outrageous and cultish, and uh, I, I bought into what he was doing and his character, and uh, and it was a really good performance by uh, Jorge Antonio Guerrero. So, uh, really enjoyed seeing him. I will say, he has a extensive nude scene where he is in he is doing uh, kung fu with a, like a wooden stick, uh, fully full frontal nude, naked, jumping around. So there's a lot of dick floppage, and for like you know a long time. And I was just like, okay, you know, you just gotta, you gotta watch the movie and, <laughs> and, and lock eyes with the guy. You know, it's, it's, at that point, it's wild locker room etiquette. You know, you just, right. you just get through it. And, uh, and, and yeah, it's a funny scene. It's just, Koran's like, I mean, yeah, he too mama take a ton of like sex stuff in it. And he's just a, I mean, it's, it's a large part of, I guess, Mexican storytelling and culture, just like weave sexual like liberal natures throughout all everything. So it's not a surprise, but, um, you know, it was a tough it's hang. The, it's the I'm not going to lie. Tough hang. What? It's the pole dancing scene. Yeah. But no, we're not referring to, uh, you know, strip tease or one of those movies, but right, 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 yeah. right. actually, did you know that, um, the actor that plays him was actually just in the news. He's in danger of missing the Oscars because he's yeah. been denied visa three different times. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, super unsurprising, right? But, uh, yeah, that, this could and be yeah. very well the thing that, uh, you know, opens the borders up again, some guy not making the Oscar. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if the U.S. government's, like, under the impression that he's, you know, in real life, actually, in some, you know, coup that's trying to overthrow his own country's government or what, but... I think the problem is Trump probably saw the, probably saw the dick ninja scene. Probably so. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to one of my favorite categories, the Leonardo DiCaprio overacting award, where we reward one particular character who screams, cries, dribbles, otherwise freaks the fuck out in the movie. Now, of course, the overacting award, Connor, I know you're new on the show. doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It just means that there's a kind of right. a scene where they go a little too ham. So, I mean, I've already given my hand. I give it to the dick ninja scene. I think, you know, the... Yeah, that's an outrageous scene, and he overacts in exactly the way he's supposed to, which is to be this sort of weird, like, Bruce Lee disciple to martial arts and how it saved his life and, uh, and all of that. So I think it, it is by far the most absurd moment in a movie of otherwise pretty mundane moments. Uh, but what do you, who, who do you all give the DiCaprio overacting work to? Thomas, who you got? Um, I'll go the grandma. Um when Furman shows up with a gun and, you know, they're not sure whether or not they're going to be shot and killed. 
it just for whatever reason that might have been the only moment of the entire film where it was a little bit hard for me to take her seriously she's like kind of screaming and like snivelly um nothing against that lady as an actress or the rest of her portrayal in the movie but i was just like i you know i'm I'm feeling the fear that Cleo's feeling. I'm not feeling grandma's like, oh, God, oh, God, please. Yeah, she's, like, just doing the Catholic thing, like, just being like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, I hear you. Connor, who do you like for his DiCaprio reaction award? Yeah, that that was – so I have three nominees, and that was okay. definitely one of them. Uh, the second one is when the mom gets done on the phone with the dad and the kids eavesdropping on her. She just walks out and just fucking drops them with like just a swift right hand to the face. Like yeah. that came out kind of came out of nowhere. So I had that. But then also yeah, had Herman doing his like ninja moves next to next to Cleo as soon as he tells her that like I'm gonna threaten you, and then he just like freaks out and does his like whole martial arts routine next to her out of nowhere. So those are my three nominees, I guess. Um, I'll probably give it to Furman since he already gave it to the grandmother. So I'm going to go with Furman. Yeah. Yeah. All those martial arts movies are something else, man. They always come out of nowhere and it's just like, Kia! it's just, I mean. Yeah. Well, it's know. also like, he's just screaming at her as well as he's doing them. Like, like as if threatening her isn't enough, I need to yell at you and almost hit you with a giant stick. Yeah. Yeah. Something else. So uh, shouts to you, Furman. Hope you make it to the Oscars uh, to receive your DiCaprio Racking Award. Uh, next category, Nick Cage switcheroo. So in this category, we decide, you know, we like this movie, but we decide that there's one point of the movie where we prefer to have our boy Nicolas Cage in there. Uh, you substitute him in, he could show up anywhere. He could be a man on the street corner. He could be a guy behind the counter serving a nice Coca-Cola. Uh, so, you know, what, give me the, 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 the character you would most like to have Nick Cage suddenly pop up as in this movie. I'm telling you, if you let me go first, neither of you are going to be able to top this. I'm just okay. going to be over with. Okay, well, then you'll go last. Connor, who do you like? Okay, my immediately my immediate thought was Professor Zovek, but it almost seems too <laughs> obvious that he would be playing that character. Right. Um, so I'm going to go with Furman, actually. Could you imagine Nicolas Cage playing Furman of that entire movie? Like just the, just him in the, in the nude scene and then the karate moves. And how he would just be a thousand percent in, like he would, he would oh, yeah. probably think he was actually Bruce Lee. Uh, that's <laughs> it's definitely Furman for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, method acting, Nick Cage uh, doing that nude scene, and, and would probably like, you know, live with the stick for a year to really become one with it. Uh, I really feel like that would be a great role for him. Essentially, <laughs> could be a breakout. Being, being Nicholas Cage, full frontal nudity would probably prompt me to seek professional help i don't know quick, quick, <laughs> quick sidebar on nick cage uh in the movie ghost rider uh, you know like he's like jacked in that movie well apparently they put like cgi's abs on him. like he like he oh has a shirtless scene so they cgi <laughs> abs so i just like just love that notion and the fact that he's been like cgi buff and so i would hope that they would you know i hope koran could shell out a million of that 50 million budget to get this guy a CGI as maybe add an inch to his uh, to his Johnson. I don't know. He's back. I don't know. Oh my God! Yeah. Nick Cage is a national treasure. No pun intended there. No, no, no pun intended. 100%. That was an accident. No pun. I love intended. it. He I love it. Treasure. <laughs> oh man, that's good stuff. So mine is y'all know that point where Cleo goes out to the, uh, to, I guess the slums to find Furman, and she goes first to his friend. 
Uh, Ramon. This is coming, yeah, dude. Yeah. And they're playing, they're playing like they got like the little band, band practice, like Nirvana, the beginnings of Nirvana there. And uh, I envisioned the guy playing guitar, just like, just, just like super solemnly strumming this like old ass Fender Strat uh, in the background and just having zero tax with respect to the serious nature of things going on. His picture, Nicolas Cage with those glass eyes and thousand yard stare, staring off in the distance of the Mexico City slums uh, as he plays the strat has no dialogue i don't want any dialogue i just want to have him in the background there i want people to think that nick cage that's what i want i want to elicit that emotion real quick but thomas it's better live up to it man you just stole mine bro you literally ramon Ramon, i mean still it's different mine's the guitar player ramon is jamming on the guitar he's also the one that's just like straight making out with his girl in the movie theater um, yeah, I mean, he's got long hair. It's basically Nick Cage, but from Con Air. So I think if you take Nick Cage out of Con Air and liter- literally digitally insert him into this movie as Roman, no one notices. <laughs> Beautiful. I don't think anyone notices. I think that's like, I'm, I'm going to stand steadfast in that theory that I'm not sure anyone notices. Maybe a few people are like, as Ramon's jamming on the guitar and she's like, Hey, can you take me to Furman? Is that Nick Cage? But in terms of like critics or anyone being like, or even IMDb, him being cited, not happening. Well, there's a possibility that this might happen if George Lucas ever, you know, starts owning the Roma expanded universe uh, and starts adding in, you know, different like, uh, oh, I just decided I'd add like a CGI hut in there. Uh, and that one scene thought we needed that or this fucking dance number. And anyway, that's just me. You know, I'm, I get triggered about that Star Wars guy. But yeah, that's great picks. Uh, Nick Cage really can show up anywhere in here, I think, and warm our hearts as well as our minds. So I, I you know, just saying, Alfonso, uh, we're here. If you want to hit us up for any casting ideas in the future in all of your movies, we are here and are happy to provide. We're going to offer the Indican Consulting Service, and three of us are available. So overall, we taught this movie. We, we were fascinated by it. We were enraptured by it. We're going to give our overall scores now. The way we score is one to four barns. You can do half barns. And you can light any of them on fire if you're feeling frisky. Thomas, what do you give Roma? Man, this is where I'd cue my Alicia Keys. This barn is on fire. Oh, nice. All four. four. Literally all four. I loved it. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, If you are listening to this podcast, please, please watch this movie. Connor. Yeah, it's it's four barns on fire, four sheer out of me, four for four on fire. Uh, there's nothing really more I can say about it than that we than we already haven't said. So yeah, four out of four for me. And I give it, I give it, I, I give it four barns. I don't like them on fire because I'm not sure how rewatchable it is in general. It's effective, it's touching, it's really well made. It's, I mean, it could not have been better for what it is. But I just wonder if there's like 10 years from now, if I'm like, hey, insert person, like, let's watch Rome, you know, like, so I, I just wonder, and that's, you know, that's a, that's just maybe a personal, a personal thing. But I just, uh, I wonder how, how, uh, you know, I feel like, I'm not trying to go on a tangent, but y'all remember that movie, um, The Artist? You remember that? Like, yeah, it, it yeah. Worked, it worked, best picture, it, it, you know, I saw it, I enjoyed it when I saw it. But I just had like literally no interest, and I'm not, this room is better than the artist. But like, dude, it, all I remember from the artist is the cute dog. If I'm being honest, yeah, and I remember like John Goodman being like a 
Hollywood producer and sitting behind the desk with a big fat cat cigar, which I'm hype on. He needs to do more of that role. But um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I could see like us looking up 10 years from now and kind of being like, if this did win Best Picture, it'd be like, yeah, it was good. But like, you know, does it have the kind of the, the cultural fortitude that like Get Out does? Probably not. But so that's my only discredit. It certainly is not a knock on the film itself. It's masterfully made. And I mean, honestly, we listened to us rave about it for like an hour or so. Uh, go check it out. Hold on one second. I'm, I'm putting a uh, calendar reminder in for 10 years from now to watch this movie with you. So Honestly, hit me up. Let's do it. And I'll, I mean, I'll definitely do it. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll call Latin Lover. Hopefully he's still on the wrestling circuit and <laughs> having over it. And we will do the damn thing. Boys, do we have any closing thoughts or are we already wrapped this sucker up? Just watch it. Watch yeah. it immediately. Um, Go watch support, it. Support movies. I mean, just keep them alive. It's, uh, and it's not a bad thing that movies are going to Netflix. I agree. All that. I didn't really chime in there, but I 100% agree. It's a very good thing that things are going to Netflix. It's going to allow more creative freedom and it to spread more to the masses. So I love it. It's just an incredible movie, incredible experience. Check it out. Filmmaking right. is fun. Alfonso, we are not worthy. <laughs> this has been another episode of In the Can, part of the Bomber Podcast Network. We've been talking Roma. Brought to you by Blue Note Bourbon. Check out the site of the-barnburner.com. You can follow me at the Barn Chief on Twitter. You can follow Connor at C Dunning, D U N N I N G 901. And catch him with the Eric Hasseltine show from, what is it, 1 to 3? 2 to 4. 2 to 4 p.m. 2 to 4. PM, 2 to 4. Standard time on 929 FM ESPN. Check that out. Uh, you can follow Thomas at, at Farmer Barn. Uh, we are going to have a good lineup this year for In the Game. We've got a, a new Twitter account. We're going to be popping off. Hopefully, we have Connor on more. Boys, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining. And- Conmigo conociste el amor.